So we are continuing today in Luke. Uh, we're in Luke 11. And uh, if you're using the black Bibles, it's page 1033. Um, you know, our title, Enemies, Antagonists, and Skeptics. You know, we all know that they're, those sometimes seem like three different groups and usually within like our own relationships, that's true. Like you might have an enemy who's like the bully at school. So the guy that takes your lunch or beats you up on the playground, like that's definitely your enemy. He's not just uh, a, an antagonist. He's an enemy. He's, he's, out for, uh, he's out to hurt you and harm you. But then there's antagonists, not really enemies. They just egg you on. Like antagonists are like your brother. So your your brother isn't your enemy, but man, he sure likes to pick on you. Uh, and then there's skeptics, not really antagonists, just skeptics. A skeptic is more like, well, like your sister. Like they're not against you. They just doubt you're ever going to amount to anything. And so... Uh, but when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to Jesus, the reality is that enemies and antagonists and skeptics are actually just synonyms. Uh, there are those who are absolutely against the gospel. There are those who are antagonists antagonistic toward the gospel and those who are skeptical of the gospel. And we kind of see that played out in this passage uh, in Luke 11, where the reality is the enemy of the gospel is Satan and still today is Satan. And the world is often full of antagonists and skeptics. And this was true uh, even when Jesus was here in his earthly ministry. So let's stand for the reading of God's word and take a look at these three enemies, antagonists, and skeptics. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own place, his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. 
Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So it's interesting how here's this miraculous healing. And this may be, if it's not the shortest, it's got to be one of the shortest accounts of a miracle in the Bible. I mean, it just says, Jesus cast out a demon that was mute. When he cast out the demon, the man spoke and the people marveled. That's it. Like we don't meet the guy, we don't hear the guy, we don't all the whole the whole setup is actually for those for the unbelievers, for us to see Jesus' interaction with antagonists and skeptics. But before we get on to that, we want to we want to spend some time, hopefully, with the quiet crowd of marvelers. We should marvel over this, this demon had silenced this man. You know, being created in God's image, part of that means that we communicate. Uh, Jesus, well, God in Genesis spoke and creation happens. He speaks things into existence. He uses language. He uses speech and he speaks to his creation and he speaks to mankind and he has given us the gift of communication the gift of speech and one of the things that satan despises is that we would use our speech to praise god or to love each other it's why we used the uh the james 3 passage for our time of repentance just uh, certainly one of the things Satan does is causes us to use our tongues and our speech uh, to tear each other down in, in anti-creative ways, to destroy rather than to build up. Uh, and James says rightly, brothers, this, this should not be. But short of that, Satan's just as happy with silence. Just keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything positive. Don't. Don't use your tongue to praise God. Silencing this man keeps him from praising God with his lips, from singing, from, from thanking God, from testifying to God's greatness. You know, when the Pharisees try to silence the disciples later in Luke, uh, the Pharisees and the priests, as, as Jesus enters Jerusalem and the people are praising him as the, as the coming king, as David's son, and the priests tell the people, hey, stop. They even tell Jesus, stop your disciples from saying that. 
And Jesus says, listen, even if they're silent, the very stones would cry out. It is a gift to praise God. Like it's why, it's why we still sing in church. I mean, this is sort of like, doesn't that feel like a relic from some time con past? Like there's no, it used to be a normal thing. Like it used to be like in pubs and bars, like people would, like whole groups of people would break out into song and, and like towns would have their songs and chants. And you see it sort of at college football games now or maybe college basketball games. I don't know. I don't watch college basketball. But the church is the last place where people gather together and just start singing as a group. And as Christians, like, we don't think that's weird at all. That's like, that's, that's what you do. But like, imagine like not being a Christian, not going to church and walking into this gathering. You're like, okay, so I get that there will be a TED talk at some point and you're going to make us feel either bad or good, depending on what kind of preacher you are. But the singing, what is this? It's this gift that God has given us that we can sing his praises. And that gift was stolen from this man by this demon. And so that gift is restored to him, the opportunity to sing God's praises. And so this man was mute. Everyone knew it. And Jesus, when he frees him from the demon, the man immediately speaks and the people marvel, or at least some of the people marvel, but not everyone. And the rest of the passage is about the people who did not marvel. So some were antagonists. They, they saw the miracle but they can't really see the miracle. They see what happened and they just, they're so fed up with Jesus at this point. They're so tired of his message. They're so tired of hearing that even God's people need to repent. They're tired of hearing even the people that aren't part of God's people are invited in. They're tired of, they're just tired of this. And so, They say what really is ludicrous. And Jesus, his whole argument is just about the logic of it. You know, he's he's probably casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Who is Beelzebul? So Beelzebul is a name. It shows up in, in Kings. It's the name of one of the Canaanite gods. But uh, by the first century, by this time, uh, that name was also associated with with a demon and uh, like a very uh, high ranking demon, the prince of demons, as it's called here. Uh, it's not necessarily that that it's Satan, but it's it's like it's it's at least an officer in Satan's crew. And and so they're. They're just saying, you know, you know, it's probably Beelzebul who gives him the power to cast out demons. And Jesus just says, are you insane? Like, let's, let's think about this. Let's think about the logic of what you're saying. If, a de- if demons are casting out demons, 
then, you know, their, their reign is over. Like, if, if tomorrow we read that the Russian army has begun firing on the Russian army, like, we'll know, well, that's taken a turn, and it's only a matter of time now. So that, that war is going to end very soon. Uh, we know like that that army has no chance when they start turning on each other. We know that a household, even his example, you know, a household divided can't stand. I mean, it's you know, your children know that. Like they know if they can play mom and dad against each other, then the chances are. I mean, it's at least fifty-fifty that you're going to get what you want because they can't. They can't. They need to be united, and so. You know, one thing is parents that you that you need to commit to before before your kids can understand when you're talking about them is that like in front of the kids you're always united. Like even if you disagree with the spouse on the direction, that disagreement happens behind closed doors. But in front of the kids it's united because a divided house can't stand. Jesus says, Listen, if if I'm casting out demons by the power of demons, who are your sons casting out demons? By whose power are they casting out demons? And so, and so it's wet. There may be others that were exercising demons, or it might have been just false uh, deliverances. But either way, Jesus points to the hole in their logic. So, what are your what are your demon exercisers? How are they handling it? Like, they will be your own judges, your own people. Jesus says, if I am casting out demons by the finger of God, then you can know this, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Which is interesting. He doesn't say, you can know this, the kingdom of God is going to come one day soon in the future. Now he says the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has broken into the kingdom of darkness and has arrived. Jesus' presence on earth and his power over sin and Satan and death is proof that the kingdom of God has now come. That you and I live in the kingdom of God even while we live in exile in the kingdom of darkness and of Satan. Two things about the, the finger of God. Why does he say it's come that, that he casts out demons by the finger of God? One is it's an allusion to Exodus chapter 8. So when Moses and Aaron were performing the signs the plagues in Egypt before God delivered uh, his people from slavery. If you remember the first couple of signs, the first couple of plagues, the, the Egyptian priests were able to mimic them. And so they would get some water and turn it red and, and say it was blood. They were, able to, they were able to produce frogs, which, by the way, is not a big deal when there's frogs everywhere. It's like, aha, look, a frog. Look what I did. Uh, but... When it came to the gnats, by the third plague, they weren't able to du duplicate any more plagues after that. And, and when, when they can't duplicate the gnat plague, 
they say this is the finger of God. The, the priests themselves say it. This is the finger of God. Uh, and so by the finger of God, God is able to defeat the false gods of Egypt, which is sort of the second point. Like it's, it's his finger. You know, it's not, it's not his arm. It's not the, the, the power of his voice even. He, the finger of God is casting out demons. It reminded me of a, uh, obscure movie. Anyone remember 1988, uh, the Presidio with, uh, Sean Connery, uh, Mark Harmon. Anyway. You don't have to. It's not even a great movie. You don't have to go see it. It's kind of dumb. But uh, Sean Connery plays the lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army, in the military police, which I know, Sean Connery, you're like, really? Well, at least it's not a Russian Russian submarine pilot. So, uh, But it's it's still unbelievable. But at one point he's in a bar, and this bully comes over, and he's kind of trash-talking the army, and and making fun of him, and so finally he turns to the bully and he says, uh, he says, I'm going to fight you, uh, but I'm only going to use my thumb. And the guy's like, really? He's like, yes, just my left thumb, my right thumb is too powerful. And then he does. He beats the guy up just using his thumb, like just like takes the guy down. So this is, like, that's part of what we're looking at here. This isn't even the arm of God. The finger of God is casting out demons. You know, we we get this weird notion that Satan and Jesus are like the yin and yang of, you know, good and evil. Uh, there's even false religions that would tell you, well, Satan and Jesus, uh, they're brothers and one is a good brother, and he wants to rule his world with goodness and kindness and compassion. And Satan is a bad brother, and he wants to rule the world with meanness and kale. And, but Jesus and Satan aren't rivals. You have to understand this. So, I couldn't... Some of you will be able to figure this out with, you'll have your own rivals. Like, like every college has rivals. Every professional team has rivals. So I grew up, I was, my dad grew up in Pittsburgh and then had all of his children in Cleveland. Uh, it was sort of his purgatory years, he would say. But, so I am a Cleveland Browns fan. Uh, my dad is a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And so, like, in the, you know, maybe in, like, the early 80s, there was a rivalry. I mean, there's a definite hatred, but you can't have a rivalry when one team stinks. That's not a rivalry. That's like, you know, that's like flies and Tyrannosaurus Rex. Like, like, oh, the flies, like, oh, that Tyrannosaurus, we'll get him one. No, that's not a rivalry. You might hate him, but... That's not a rivalry. There's no rivalry between Jesus and Satan. Like, Jesus wins without even trying. Like, the finger of God is casting out demons. So you can 
rest assured that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus compares Satan to a strong man, certainly. And he's very confident. And he's confident in his armor and he's confident in spoils. He says, but all it's going to take is a stronger man. All it takes is one stronger than Satan. And he will plunder his house and he will destroy him. And then he gives us sort of... Even his, his statement about the kingdom has come upon you is, is sort of tiptoeing into the skeptic issue. He's like, you want a sign? The finger of God is casting out demons. How's that for a sign? Uh, but then he says, he says this weird thing, and it seems like it's the opposite of what he said to his disciples earlier, because they were upset about some people casting out demons. And they said, hey, sh- should we stop them? And he's like, what? No. If they're not against you, they're for you. And then here, it's almost like he says the exact opposite of that. He says, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. But we're talking about two different things here. We're talking about those who are doing things for the kingdom Maybe in ways that you wouldn't have done them. And he says, listen, they're with you. If they're not against you, they are with you. But here he's talking about those who are antagonistic or even skeptical of the gospel itself, of Jesus himself. He says, look, if if you're not with me, you're against me. And there's a difference between when he says, if they're not against you, they're with you. But he says, if you're not with me, the Son of God... You're against me. Like you might think being skeptical is a very safe place to be. Like at least you're not antagonistic. At least you're not an outright enemy. But he says, you know, there's this uh, G.K. Chesterton. Um, is fa- one of his one of my favorite things that he said is. Um, the object of the object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid so an open mind the purpose of an open mind is the same as an open mouth to shut it on something solid a constantly open mouth will never eat a constantly open mind will never settle on the truth will never hear the truth just there's this there's this skepticism there's it's okay to be skeptical as long as you are listening to the answers it's there's nothing wrong with skepticism of asking questions of saying i don't understand i don't get it but when the answers are presented to continue to claim skepticism is no longer skeptical now it's cynical and cs lewis uh, I love his point about cynicism, like because because cynics love that they can see through things, and I am a recovering cynic, so I know like it's just a delight to be able to see the motive behind the motive, and and like to like be able to say, oh, this is really what's going on here. But 
But C.S. Lewis points out, well, the point of being able to see through the window is so that you're able to see the trees outside. I mean, if, if you see through everything, you're blind. It just means everything has become invisible to you. The whole point of seeing through something is to see the solid thing, the truth behind it. But if you see through that as well, and you see through that as well, and you see through that as well, that's the, the danger of cynicism. You just see through everything, and pretty soon you don't see anything. You know, we think that being skeptical, being open-minded is such a, a gift today. And I'm not, I'm not saying that there's the opposite is to be rude or to be closed-minded uh, toward others. But the idea of being open-minded, Jesus sort of addresses in his final sort of illustration. You know... The demon leaves, and the guy finally has an open mind, and, and, it's, and he's clear-headed for the first time. Well, unless someone else comes in and occupies, unless the Spirit comes, that open mind is just begging to be reoccupied with the next whim, seven times worse than the first. The bottom line is that enemies, antagonists, skeptics, they're, they're just, in many ways, they're different versions of the same thing. Now, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you have any doubts or you have any fears, then obviously you're a skeptic, which means you're an antagonist, which means you're an enemy, which means you're out. But whether you're antagonistic toward God and the gospel or skeptical of God and the gospel, you've positioned yourself above God and the gospel. You're saying, you answer to me. You need to explain yourself. You need to show me. You need to prove yourself to me. Now, I want you to remember a couple of things here. Because maybe, maybe you are antagonistic toward the gospel, or maybe you're just skeptical of the gospel, and now you're thinking, what do you, I thought, I, I thought the church is where you're supposed to come with these questions and with these doubts. I thought everyone was welcome, and this is where we're supposed to be, and that is absolutely true. Remember, there was no one more antagonistic toward Jesus and the gospel than Paul. Paul was antagonistic toward Jesus and the gospel. You would even say so antagonistic, he was an enemy of Christ and the church. And he was not beyond the reach of the arm of God. And his antagonism had no power against the finger of God. It's interesting in Matthew, he says it's by the Spirit of God in the same passage. So the finger of God and the Spirit of God. Paul was no match for the Holy Spirit, even in his antagonism. You know, I'm reminded of, uh, if you don't know Chuck Colson's whole story. You know, Chuck Colson, 
uh, worked for Richard Nixon and had earned rightly the nickname the Hatchet Man. Like if they wanted something dirty done, they went to Chuck Colson and he was their man. Uh, he may not have uh, specifically had his fingers in Watergate, but his plans were all over Watergate. And like this is a man who by his life, you would look at him and say, this man is an antagonist, even an enemy of the gospel. And yet like, in prison, Christ found him and turned his life around. And because Christ found him in prison, he had a heart for bringing Christ to prisoners. You know, maybe you're just skeptical. I don't know if there's a more famous skeptic in the Bible than the woman at the well. I mean, she's skeptical. Like, she does not trust religion anymore. It has done her no good. All these men who hide behind their religion, who are quite willing to, to use her and abuse her, married four times. Now she's not even married. Like, the whole system is broken in her mind. What is the point? And Christ comes to her. And he answers her questions. And he sees through her cynicism. And he presses in. And every skeptical question she asks, he's able to answer. Until she is running back to the village that has written her off with the gospel. Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Is this the Messiah? Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says, You, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach before him. Maybe you're convinced like, okay, part of my skepticism is you don't know what I've done. You don't know how far away from God I've walked. Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Romans 5. A person will scarcely die for a righteous person. Maybe for a good person one might dare to die. But God, God shows His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we surely be saved by his life. We were all 
God's enemies. All of us. Whether antagonistic or skeptical, we were all God's enemies. But by the finger of God, he saved us. And if he saved us, if he, if he reconciled us to God while we were still his enemies, won't he, won't he finish that work in us? We don't have to be afraid of our questions. We can ask our questions. We can come with our doubts and know that God rescues and saves his enemies. If you are convinced that you, there's no way you can't be his enemy. That you've done too much. That you've, like, this is your lot. Christ delights in thwarting Satan's plans. It's why he came to earth. He loves rescuing sinners. He loves saving enemies and reconciling them to God. Don't, don't leave here today wondering, could God still love me? Know that God loves and changes his enemies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. Just even the imagery of Jesus being the arm of God and the spirit being the finger of God. You work for our salvation and we thank you. We pray, God, for family, for loved ones, for friends, for one another, as we often feel that we are the antagonist to you. Would you break through our hard hearts, remind us that Christ dies for enemies. In Jesus' name, amen.